teachers are going to be held to a stricter judgment than the students are. And in the same way, it says, fathers and husbands, you're going to be held to a stricter standard because of the teaching role that God has given you. Certainly, women, mothers have, have significant teaching roles in the home. Uh, and yet, the way God has structured it, there is a prime of place in terms of responsibility that he has given to the father in passing down the tradition. And any of you who have been parents know how much your children learn, not from what you say, but from what you do. And so the Ten Commandments come to fathers in a special way in terms of how fathers conduct themselves because they're passing that on to the next generation. So, these six words are neighbor-centered, they're also father-centered, and they are God-centered. When we were talking about how to count the Ten Commandments, one of the reasons why I said that honoring father and mother, which we normally think of as going with love for neighbor, belongs with love for God, is because all of those first four words have a rationale. Do this because. And in the because, it's always the Lord who is the because. Do this because of the Lord. Now, once we get to do not murder, you'll look in vain for any reason for keeping the commandments. It doesn't say do not murder because, do not commit adultery because, do not uh, steal because, do not lie because. There are plenty of reasons why we shouldn't do these things. My point is in the Ten Commandments, we're not given any. And I think the reason why we're not given a rationale for the last six is because we have the rationale in the first four. So even though, remember, read through murder to the end, and God's name is never even mentioned in these commandments. So maybe they're just kind of atheistic ethical principles. Not at all. They are tied to the first. They're integrated with the first four. The reason why we are to do all of these things for neighbor is because of our love for God. Love for God is going to manifest itself in love for neighbor, which is why when Jesus was asked what's the one greatest commandment, he couldn't stop. He couldn't say, The greatest commandment is love God. Now, can I take another question from the audience? He said, the greatest commandment is love God, but no more questions until I make clear. I can't stop there. I've got to go on to say there's another one like it. Love your neighbor. Because as James would say, how can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your neighbor whom you do see every day? Loving neighbor is the way we show our love for God. So just to, I guess we probably could just quit right there. That's enough to chew on. Uh, but that, that's just my introduction. Sorry for that. I know you thought I was done. Oh, my, my wife and I had one pastor at one point in our early married life. And um, he was a good 
long preacher. And I remember once, we always sat right there. We did. Well, no, I think we sat, nobody sat in the front pew. We sat in the first pew, which was the second pew. And uh, of course, I, I was in grad school and days were long and Sunday mornings, sometimes we were tired. And I remember one time there was a long sermon and uh, he, he was wrapping it up. We realized he was just at the end of the introduction. We just looked at each other, you know, with that kind of pained agony. So, sorry if you thought I was done already. But um, I think those are three important factors to keep in mind as we look at these last six words. And obviously, we're not going to look at them in tremendous detail, because we're going to cover six in one sermon. So, keep this in mind that all six of these really are neighbor-centered, they're father-centered, and ultimately, they're God-centered commandments. Now, these uh, last uh, six really break down into two sections, uh, external and internal. Let's first of all look at love of neighbor from an external point of view. That's 17, 18, 19, and 20. That's uh, word 6, 7, 5, 6, 7, and 8, those five. If you look at these, uh, and they are no murder. Uh, let me get back to that. Uh, let me get back to that text. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no false testimony. These are all things that you could be convicted of. There's a difference between a sin and a crime in, in, in any particular country. There are things that are crimes, and there are things that are sins, and there are sins that are not crimes in our country. There are things that you can do wrong violating God's law, but it's not a violation of any law in the United States. But, but at least from an external point of view, from an Old Testament point of view, all of these first commandments in this second group are external things. There's something that somebody could prove you did, you could be convicted in a court of law. Uh, let's look at each one of these as, as an example of how to love neighbor. First of all, you love neighbor by protecting your neighbor's life. You shall not murder. Now, when we looked at the fourth commandment, I found it very helpful to look at the Heidelberg Catechism and how the Heidelberg Catechism helped us to understand the fourth commandment. What we're going to do this morning in looking at these, uh, these four commandments is to look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism because of its insightfulness in helping us to understand what this means. We can translate you shall not murder into you shall love your neighbor by protecting your neighbor's life. Question 68 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is required by the sixth commandment? The Sixth Commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. We're going to see this repeatedly, but notice how the commandment 
according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, doesn't start with, what does this mean I can't do? Negative. It starts on a positive note. What positively does you shall not murder? What positively does that require me to do? And in one word, it's preserve. The commandment requires you to preserve. We, we're used to thinking of the, of the commandment as forbidding us to take away. But first of all, the Westminster divines say you have to see the positive nature here that it requires you to preserve your own life and the life of others. Notice how the Westminster divines say that this command requires you to not only preserve the life of another, but to preserve your own life. Where'd they get that idea? Well, they got it from Jesus, who got it from the commandments. You shall love God and love neighbor as you love self. And so, just like love of neighbor shows you how to love God, how do you love neighbor? In general, you love neighbor by doing to neighbor what you would have neighbor do to you. And so, if you start thinking about self and how you would want self to be treated, it helps you to know how to treat neighbor, which helps you to know how to love God. That's why the love of God, the love of neighbor, the love of self can't be separated. They're all integrated in God's economy. Preserving your own life and the life of others. Question 69, what is forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? The sixth commandment forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatever tends thereunto. Just two key words here, unjustly. Translations that say you shall not murder are good translations. Translations that say you shall not kill are too ambiguous. This commandment Notice the word unjustly. This commandment does not prohibit the just taking of another life. For example, capital crimes and the death penalty. That's a whole huge topic in and of itself. Suffice it to say that when a capital offense has been committed and a life is taken justly through our court system and the decision of a jury of one's peers, that is not murder. That is not the unjust taking of a life. Or we could think of self-defense. God forbid that we should ever find ourselves needing to defend ourselves and take another's life. But the taking of one's life in self-defense is not an unjust taking of a life. Now, I have quite a few uh, family and close friends uh, who have concealed weapons permits. And uh, I can usually tell when something is concealed because that's when the Hawaiian shirts come out. Um, But to a man, 
They have all said, I hope I never have to use this. But I also hope that I'm never found in a situation where I need to and I can't. The commandment prohibits the unjust taking of another life. Not the just taking of another life. And then it adds, whatsoever tends thereunto. See, this is when it gets meddling. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus really deepened our understanding of what it means to keep the commandments. Well, it's not so much that he added stuff as much as he was just unpacking what is already there. Whatsoever tends thereunto. Stop and think about it. And we've talked about this in in a number of ways. Somebody's driving home late at night and they're under the influence of alcohol. They have violated this commandment. Whether they're ever in an accident or not, whether they actually, through being under the influence, take another life or not, because what have they done? They have violated the whatsoever tendeth thereunto. They have put themselves in a position where it is more likely rather than less likely, that they could unjustly take the life of another human being. I don't know if you use alcohol or not, but I hope if you do, you will reflect on what driving under the influence is. It is not, keep the white lines to the right and I hope I make it home. It is, I have just violated you shall not murder. Because my actions are showing disrespect for the life of neighbor. My actions are putting the life of neighbor in jeopardy. I am not doing what I need to be doing to protect the life of neighbor. Now again, I'm taking a little bit longer on this one just so that we begin to get the the feel for what these commandments mean and how difficult it becomes to read the Ten Commandments and say, oh, is that all? Remember when the guy said to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. And the guy said, is that all? I've been doing that for the entirety of my life. And Jesus said, oh, really? Sell everything that you have and give it away to the poor. And the guy went away sad because he was so rich and he couldn't do it. Jesus was not requiring you to divest yourself of all of your personal property. He was talking to this individual to give him a flannel graph lesson to say, you think you've kept them all? You haven't even kept the very first one. Once you get down to the heart of the matter, which we'll do if we get to the second part of the sermon. So, uh, protecting your neighbor's life. Not only do I want you to see the specifics here that we've talked about, but just to see the the general way in which 
these commands come to apply so that you can begin to think about your life and about your actions in terms of the law of God uh, in a deeper and more profound way. Next, we love neighbor by protecting your neighbor's marriage. You shall not commit adultery. What is required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. Notice again, our own and our neighbor. These com- if Love neighbor as you would love self. How would you like neighbor to relate to your spouse? That's the way you relate to neighbor's spouse. Uh, in heart, we'll talk more about that later. In speech, in behavior. Preserving your neighbors, whether they're your geographical neighbor or your work neighbor or a neighbor that you know that lives across the state, your neighbors have a right to life. It's a God-given right. You can't violate that. Your married neighbors have a right to a good marriage. And God forbids you from doing anything to break that good marriage up. Uh, your own as well as theirs. What is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. We're going to talk more about that, the thought part, uh, momentarily. It requires you to treat others in a way that builds and fosters their marriage relationship. It forbids you from doing, from saying anything that is going to come in to break down that relationship. The positive and the negative. Your own and that of your neighbor. Uh, the, the next one, protecting your neighbor's property. You shall not steal. What is required in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment requires the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought about this before. We have a couple of, of dynamics in, in Christianity. We have some Christians who think Building a financial estate is worldly. I'm not going to give any thought to that at all. Then we have Christians, on the other hand, who think that building my financial estate is the essence of who I am. Uh, Two extremes. Have you ever stopped to think? uh, We probably have a third. We have a group of people who think, well, I really should build a financial estate, but I kind of feel guilty about doing it. I know it's the right thing to do, but I feel guilty. Have you ever thought that you shall not steal requires you to procure wealth? That's what it says in the Westminster Confession, to procure wealth and an outward estate. Positively, it requires you to build an estate. But it doesn't only require you to build your own estate, it requires you to do whatever is in your power and under your influence to help neighbor build his estate to build her estate. 
This is not worldliness. This is godliness. I may have said it before. I hope none of you have ever had it on your RV. The old bumper sticker that said, we're spending our children's inheritance. Who's ever seen that one? Uh, Don't admit it if you have it, but get a magic marker and black it out if you do. That's ungodly. Proverbs says a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. We are building an estate not only for our retirement years, but that we might pass that estate on to the next generation. An example that I, if you build a house, you have a choice. You can either put a new lawn in with seed or with sod. Seed costs far less money, but it's a lot more work. If you can put that lawn in with sod, you can be going about doing all sorts of other things because the sod's kind of going to take care of itself. That's what we want to do with the next generation. We want to build an estate so that we had to do what? We had to plant with seed. But we've worked hard so that the next generation doesn't have to plant with seed. They can put sod down. And while the sod is down, they can be doing other things for the next generation. Thinking generationally. My grandparents were all immigrants. None of my grandparents had a college education. I'm not even sure, because they they go back to uh, Eastern Europe, I'm not sure uh, they all even had high school educations. My parents both graduated from high school, and each of them did at least a college class or two. All three of their children got college degrees. That's thinking generationally in terms of an educational system. And the Bible says we do the same thing with wealth, not only for ourselves, but also for neighbor. Positively, we are required to do what is in our power in order to help people procure and further wealth and outward estate. Now, what's forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment forbids whatsoever uh, does or may unjustly hinder our own or neighbor's wealth or outward estate. Anything that you do that hinders the acquisition of or the furthering of wealth for yourself or for neighbor is a violation. See, it's not just a question of, did I go to the store and steal something off the shelf? It's, am I using my financial resources in a way that is going to build or in a way that is going to tear down. Just think about gambling. I remember talking to my colleague, John Frame. Uh, Now, we should probably turn the microphone off at this point. Um, I I personally, just like I don't think that there's a a miss, that, that all use of alcohol is wrong, but certainly there is a misuse. And if there's a family tendency toward that misuse, wisdom is going to say, stay away. In the same way, I I don't think that all gambling is wrong. I mean, if you're using discretionary money that you could spend on a movie, or you go and you buy a lottery ticket, it's entertainment. It's, It's not an addiction. It's not a problem, keeping in mind. However, if you're taking your paycheck 
a paycheck that should be paying rent and should be buying food and should be clothes for your kids and building an estate for your children and for your grandchildren, and you're squandering that on gambling, oh, that's, that's another whole matter. So you see, life just isn't quite as black and white. I uh, hope, hope the elders don't get emails on this one, but, it, but you follow me. Uh, the, the point of the law is that we're to be doing what builds wealth and we're to be staying away what destroys wealth. Uh, and gambling can destroy wealth. And if it's, in, if it's that destructive kind of thing, it's a violation. In other words, it's not just a matter of what we think of as stealing. Oh, I see that on the shelf. I'm going to put it in my pocket in the store and walk away. Okay, protecting our neighbor's reputation. Uh, You shall not bear false witness. What is required in the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between people and our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing and the reflex of that. The ninth commandment forbids whatever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. A good reputation. The Bible values a good reputation. The Bible tells us that Jesus, as a young boy, grew in wisdom and in stature in the sight of God and people. Jesus had a phenomenal reputation as he was growing. The book of Proverbs talks about the value of someone's name and the maintenance of someone's name. And we must avoid everything, and we must do everything, avoid everything that brings dishonor to our name or to the name of another. In Western culture, we're not a shame-based culture, and so we don't quite have the idea of bringing shame on the family through our actions. Oh, yeah, that was embarrassing. How many of you parents have ever been? How many of you parents have never been embarrassed by something that your kids did? Uh, okay, th- this is something that is more profound than that. So, of course, lying, gossiping, slandering, even telling the truth can violate this commandment. If that truth is being told for the purpose of bringing someone's reputation down instead of lifting their reputation up. When we speak about self, when we speak about others, we certainly are not permitted to speak falsehood. We must speak truth, but even truth that we speak, it's kind of like in the military, uh, need-to-know basis. There are times when you can say things about others that are true, but you have to stop before you do and say, why am I saying this truth? It is true. Does this other person really need to hear this? Is this going to enhance the reputation of my brother or my sister, my neighbor, or is it going to detract from their good name? And so we have to protect our neighbors. Our neighbors have rights. Our neighbors have God-given rights to life, to marriage, to property, to reputation. We must do everything that we can to foster those rights and avoid everything we can that violates those rights. 
Okay, more quickly, in the last verse, which is love of neighbor internal. If you look at coveting and desiring, you can't be convicted for this. Because coveting and desiring are something that there's no evidence for. It's something that's going on inside you. You and you alone know what's going on in the deepest resources of the heart. And this is why Jesus said in Matthew 15, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Notice that when, have you ever stopped to think that when Jesus said that, he's alluding to the Ten Commandments. Uh, Murder, adultery, after adultery, he throws in sexual immorality, which is a broadening of adultery, theft, false witness, and then he says slander, which is one kind of... But the, the order that Jesus gives here is the exact order right out of the Ten Commandments. I guess Jesus had the Ten Commandments memorized. I guess he thought it was pretty important to know the Ten Commandments so that they might be a light to his path, a lamp to his feet. If he did, maybe it'd be a good idea for us as well. Internal things, there are two. Protecting your neighbor's marriage. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now, here's where I hope you remember Exodus. Because Exodus said you shall not uh, covet your neighbor's property. That is, his wife, his servants, his gold, his silver, his cattle. But in Deuteronomy, Moses changes things up. He first of all puts wife first, everything else second, and he changes the vocabulary. Exodus is covet, covet. Deuteronomy is covet, desire. He's changing it up because he wants us to separate the coveting of wife from the desiring of property. This corresponds to the sixth word. You shall not commit adultery. That's external. You could get caught. This is internal. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Nobody can ever know if you did this or not. This is just between you and God. Here, Moses takes us to the heart of the matter. Adultery doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It happens in an environment. And the environment starts inside the heart. Have you ever had a mold problem? There's one way to get rid of mold for sure. Change the environment. What does mold require? Moisture. Mold requires moisture. Cut off the moisture and what happens? Mold is not going to grow. Uh, uh, Doing some... Remodeling of my uh, workshop and uh, painting before putting some new storage up. I notice the paint is kind of peeling, so I say to my son, uh, hey, would you scrape all that loose paint off and float out some drywall compound and then paint it and fix it all up for me? So he's doing that, and he says, well, it's not just loose paint, it's loose drywall, it's soaking wet drywall. 
and uh, there's an elbow in the wall out of the water, and there's a real tiny leak, so tiny that it can't even show any water out there, and of course there's mold all inside there. Good thing my son does this professionally, so he knew how to, that's why I asked him to do it in the beginning. Uh, he knew how to cut the drywall out, he knew how to find the parameters of where the mold was, fix the leak, no more moisture, mold problem gone. Adultery problem, gone. How do we get the adultery problem to be gone? We guard the heart. Because if there's that moisture of coveting in the heart, then the mold of adultery is going to grow. But we guard our hearts. Uh, And so one of the best things that we can do to maintain healthy marriages, not have marriages violate the commandment about committing adultery is to guard our hearts. It's for husbands and wives to guard each other's hearts. Uh, Adulterous relationships don't happen without moisture. Keep your marriages moisture-free. Take care of each other as you're supposed to be taking care of each other. Love each other as you are supposed to be loving each other. Fill each other up as you're supposed to be filling each other up, and there will not be any vacuum for an adulterous relationship to come into play. But it all starts inside the heart. Protecting your neighbor's marriage and protecting your neighbor's property. This corresponds to you shall not steal. What is required in this commandment? It requires contentment with our own condition and a charitable spirit toward our neighbor's condition. It forbids discontentment with regard to our own estate. It forbids envying and it forbids all inordinate affections toward anything that is our neighbor's. And so we see here that two of those Outwards, now get some inward treatment. How do you avoid stealing? It starts inside the heart. It starts with contentment. Now wait, I, th- I thought you said I was supposed to want to build wealth. How can I build wealth if I'm not content? Doesn't building wealth presume that I'm discontent with what I have and I want to get more, more, more? No, there's a biblical balance. We have a desire to build more, but that desire is not coming out of lack or want or need. It's not coming out of that negativity of fear. It's coming out of positivity. I'm content with what I have, and I'm all about building more out of that contentment. And so if we are coming at wealth and physical property from that perspective, there won't be anything in our hearts. There won't be any desire in our hearts for what our neighbor has. We will be rejoicing with those who rejoice. When we see what they have and what they get, it won't create emptiness in us because we're content with what we have. Uh, It might motivate us to be building our own estate, 
uh, my, my oldest son is a, is a weightlifter, an avid weightlifter. He came home from the gym the other night, last night, and we were chatting, and he said, oh, man, I'm going to be sore tomorrow. He said, because I did legs. He said, I don't like legs, but you got to do legs because you can't just be upper body strong and not lower body strong. He said, well, we had to do legs. And he said, but the good, I, I did it with somebody who loves to do legs. That's why I'm going to be in trouble tomorrow. He said, because after I did one, I'd be ready to quit. But he said, no, this is good. Let's do another one. Let's do another. So you see, there's an ability for us to enhance each other. And so when we see folks who have what we don't have, we don't desire it in a negative way. We rejoice with them. And it motivates us to improve the quality of our lives as well, coming out of a perspective of, I'm content with what I have. If I don't get another thing, I'm good with that. And I want to build more for, for my future, for the future of my children, for the future of my grandchildren. Well, this is longer than I anticipated, but... Let's bring it to a conclusion. Uh, question 82. Is anyone able perfectly to c- keep the commands of God? Let me give you a short answer. No. No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commands of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. So relax. The Westminster divines know you're not going to do it. 85, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and the curse due to our breaking of the commandments? To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life with the diligent use of the outward means, public worship of God, celebration of the Lord's Supper next week, The outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. And so when we realize that um, the keeping of the commandments is way more difficult than we originally thought. We thought we were okay if we had never murdered anybody and we now realize if we drive under the influence we've broken the commandment. It's way more difficult to keep the commandments than we ever thought. And we realize that the wage of sin is death. And we realize that Jesus kept the commandments for us and died to pay the penalty for our sins, which we celebrate in a special way next week. We say, God, how how can I show you how grateful I am for all that you've done for me? Obedience out of gratitude, obedience out of love. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And if we love Jesus, who is God, then we're motivated to love neighbor as we love ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're glad for the crispness of your law, for how succinctly you put it. Uh, we're a little bit unsettled by the depth of the law, to say the least, because of how far-reaching the implications of it are. Uh, we know that we have all sinned and will sin have fallen and will fall short of your glory revealed in the law. We are so grateful that you sent Christ to keep the law for us and to pay the penalty in his death that he might be raised for our justification. We pray that you would write this law on our hearts, that we might, like Jesus, carry it with us, 
that it might shape our thoughts, our words, and our actions. That we might love neighbor as a demonstration of our love for you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.